Welcome to episode 254 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We've got one of those great episodes coming up where we're dipping into the mailbag, the email mailbag. Yes. I guess that was redundant. And we're going to approach a question that's been posed to us. And I'm not even going to give any other indication as to what the question might be or what our answer might be. Yes. Before we have just a little opening prolegomena. Yeah. So rather than doing... Um affirmations and denials. Uh, this happens time from time to time where something going on in the world is of such gravity that we have to kind of interrupt our ordinary sequence of things. And we don't have a lot to say, but we just, I wanted to just acknowledge kind of everything going on currently in Afghanistan. Uh, we're recording this on August 29th, which is two days before president, uh, Joe Biden has declared we will be out of Afghanistan. I suppose it it remains yet to be seen whether that actually will happen. Um, we'll we'll know that obviously when you're listening to this, you'll know that because it'll be after after that date. But um, politics aside, everything aside, there's just been some really terrible things going on, and, and people are losing their lives. People are living in fear. So just uh, you know, if you're listening to this right now, I'm sure that things have not magically gotten better in the the four days or whatever it'll be. Uh, since we recorded this, that you're hearing this, uh, just stop, say a quick prayer for, for the people of Afghanistan, for our troops, whether they're still there or whether they're out of there, they're still going to be facing, you know, some significant after effects. Uh, we've, you know, we've got people who've lost their lives. There was a suicide bombing, uh, last week and I think 10 or 13, 10 or 12, you know, a dozen or so, uh, U S military forces lost their lives, um, you know, hundreds of people injured and killed that were civilians. So we just wanted to take a minute and acknowledge that because it's something that's happening in our world. And as, as much as we like to keep our show light, uh, there are times where it's important to, to, to be serious and not light about something. Right on. I totally agree. So with that said, we're going to forego our affirmations and denials, and we're going to jump straight into our topic, which, as uh, Jesse mentioned, is coming from an email from a listener uh, we don't, I mean, we don't have like a real mailbag because we don't get real mail, I suppose. But <laughs> Jesse, what do we got coming at us from the mailbag here? So I'm going to start in a somewhat different way by reading the passage. It's not a passage in question, but more an application of this passage yes. and what it has for us in terms of outworkings with respect to prayer. So let's just dive right in. I'm going to read something from the book of Hebrews chapter six. This is beginning in verse four. Most will hear the first several words and will know immediately this passage. So if starting in verse yeah. four, we read, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. 
So speaking of starting in like a lighthearted way, or the podcast yeah. is normally being lighthearted, let's just drop right into that passage. And the emphasis of this particular question was asking, as we understand what the author of Hebrews is saying here, as we make implications for those who might have fallen away, does the Bible provide liberty or a license for us to pray for those who have turned from justification in Christ alone? Or does the Bible tell us that we should not pray for those? And so we might think of many examples in our own lives. And certainly I think the kind listener who posed this question had one example for them as well. And that was, what do we do with, let's say, a good friend or a family member who seemingly has, as the author writes here, tasted and seen this goodness of God, who has in some way, let's say, even experienced this illumination of God, in maybe even a manifest or visible form, and then purposefully, demonstrably, volitionally turns away, denies justification in Christ alone, and goes some other route, whatever that route might be. Does the scripture tell us to continue to pray for that person or not? What do we do with it? So that is the whole enchilada today. Yeah, That's we're just going to tackle on this episode. We're going to tackle like a real easy question this week. <laughs> Take just a, a breather from our hard-hitting subjects. Yeah, this is a heavy passage and um you know, most commonly at least in my experience, reformed folk uh butt up against this when someone is kind of throwing it at us, right? So we're we're used to addressing a passage like this in almost a defensive posture or an apologetics posture. Because whether it's an Arminian who wants to say, see, look, you're, you're telling me that the saints always persevere, and this clearly says that people can fall away. Right. Or sometimes it's an unbeliever who's kind of throwing it out there, and they're saying, yeah, what kind of gracious God do you serve? Is you know, if, if, they, if you slip up and you fall away, there's no way back. Like, that doesn't seem very gracious. So we're used to approaching this in that sort of, like, responsive mode. And what I think is important for not just Reformed Christians, but for Christians in general, is to realize, like, there's no passage in the Bible that isn't our passage, right? From a Reformed perspective, they're all Reformed passages. They're all Calvinist passages, because we believe that the Scripture teaches a system of doctrine that's coherent and comprehensive, and that that is, you know, we believe the Reformed doctrines are that system. So that's the first kind of thing I want to say is like, when you're looking at a passage like this, resist the urge to step into that defensive mode when you don't have to be. Sometimes we have to be, sometimes we have to respond to an objection or, or respond to the way a passage is misinterpreted. But when we read it sort of from a constructive posture or from a positive posture, a lot of times I think we're able to see things a little more clearly than when we're kind of back on our heels, trying to sort of like make some progress forward back against someone who's pushing us back. Right. That's a great place to start. You know, this idea that somehow the scriptures have like Calvinist or Augustinian verses, and then there's Arminian verses and we just right. go to the ones that support our team. There's no such thing, right? It, right. D- it doesn't take away the fact that, as we said before, some of us are going to be right like on this, the ones on this podcast, some of us will be wrong. <laughs> and, but, and, you know, we say that tongue in cheek, but of course right. we're convicted in it. If you believe firmly in the convictions that you've received, then you ought to stand behind them. And you ought to then understand how all of scripture is again, as Paul writes, God breathed for this purpose of instruction. And that instruction is in a systematic, cogent, coherent kind of way. So I think actually we've talked about this passage we, we talked around this passage on a lot of different topics, but never quite where this listener is leading us in yeah. that 
I think they're kind of focusing on even the passage, the verses like following the ones that are more famously quoted here, this idea that, you know, for the land that has drunk the rain that falls on it, that's going to produce a good crop. It's going to receive a blessing from God. That makes sense, right? If it is receiving this goodness from God and doing what it ought to do, that is receiving the rain, then there will be fruit that is born out of the ground as a result of that. But this last verse, verse eight, this idea of like, but if it's bearing these thorns and thistles, it's worthless. It's going to be cursed. It's near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned, destroyed, right. mutilated. And so this idea of, well, then how does prayer fit into this whole place? And I think there's a lot that we can say about this, but here's where I would like to start is I see this passage in light of everything you just said, which is a hundred percent right on, or is like, I think the cool kids say like, uh, what is it called? Like hundo, hundo P? I yeah, I have no idea what the cool kids say. That Hundo would assume P. I'm one of the cool kids. Yeah, I'm Hundo I can't P. imagine that's something one of the cool kids say because it doesn't sound like a cool kid thing. Listen, it took me two times consecutively saying it when I was like, ooh, yeah, it's not. It, yeah, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right. So no. we, we don't edit. So that's staying in. You're welcome, everybody. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I'm, even if we did edit, that would stay in. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm 100% behind what you said because this is, as I read it, because it is in the scripture, this is a real warning. So it's not like we're saying this is like a warning, like a cliff warning in the middle of Kansas. This is a real warning for Christians. And you may put Christians in quotation marks if you like that, make you feel more comfortable with respect to this particular addressment here. But what we're talking about is the same thing that Paul talks about elsewhere when he's saying, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. So I think the best place to begin is, can we acknowledge that this is a very good kindness of God to put this kind of test, to put these words in front of us? Because what he's trying to do, or what he is doing rather effectively, is he's calling us to question, as Jesus did, this commitment of faith, understanding the root of our faith, where our faith and trust actually lies. And so I think it's safe to say that this is very, very kind language first. It is hard, but not unkind. Yeah. And, you know, like I've always said, you know, my motto when you run up against a, a passage of scripture that you're struggling with or that you have had sort of pushed against you or you're just trying to understand better, read a little bit more, right? So we're, we're going to see as we unpack some of this, we're going to see like the answer to the quandary is found if you continue reading, yes. right? This was not a letter or a sermon probably that was just like, you know, you don't just have verses four through eight. Some guy didn't walk into a meeting and be like, by the way, it's impossible to renew someone who's fallen away and then dropped the mic and walked out. Like he kept on talking, kept on writing. So one of the things that I think is also important that I feel like we've talked about, but I don't know that we've ever really like landed and pinned it down is that there's a difference between visible categories and invisible categories. And it's really important to understand the distinction in this conversation is right. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And the purpose of that is so that we may do the the law of the Lord. But the principle is that there are some things that God has that are secret that he keeps to himself that he has not revealed to us. And then there are other things that he has revealed to us. And in a sort of parallel way, there's, there's things as God sees them, the invisible things that God sees, 
and then there's the visible things that we see. And so we have to keep that as distinction in mind because a lot of times where we go wrong on a passage like this, or when we're talking about who is the proper you know, the proper recipient of baptism, for example, although Baptists and Presbyterians obviously disagree on the age of the recipient, we also all recognize that there are visible categories, that someone makes a visible profession of faith, and we baptize on that visible profession of faith and the visible, you know, sometimes the visible life that they live to testify to the reality of their conversion. That doesn't actually give us the invisible reality. So in a passage like this, if we try to peer too hard into the invisible reality and think that we're we're interpreting this and seeing invisible things, that we're going to go sideways right away. So that's the first thing for our, our listener who wrote in and for everyone else is try to keep in your mind that the, the author here is not telling us to peer into or to observe or to make make judgment calls or form our behavior based on invisible categories, because by definition, we're not able to see those. And God doesn't expect us to see those. He doesn't give us directions based on something that we have no ability to see that he has chosen not to reveal to us. So that's the first distinction in this passage that I really want to make sure we land. This is a passage that's talking about visible realities that we have access to without some sort of supernatural insight or supernatural vision. We don't need regeneration goggles to be able to to tell who the passage is talking about, because sometimes that's I feel like that's what people come away with this. They go, well, yeah, like a true regenerate Christian can't fall away. And so this passage, this warning only applies to truly regenerate Christian or truly unregenerate people who call themselves Christians. And that's true. But the reality is that we we don't know who those people are. Exactly. We have to operate based on whether or not someone remains outwardly in the faith or whether they walk away inward or you know, outwardly in the faith. We don't know what's going on inwardly. So like the example that might come up, and this is coming off the heels of our, our deconstruction episode, right? The question comes up as well, is Joshua Harris lost? Well, I, I don't know. Like he seems to have abandoned the faith. He says he's abandoned the faith. And so I, I can't peer into his heart. So rather than trying to observe that invisible reality of whether he's a regenerate who's backslidden or whether he's truly an apostate who never was regenerate, I, that's that's way above my pay grade. So that's where we need to start with this passage is we have to look at the outward things available to us. And that is what puts us into uh, uh, what category a person's in that. I mean, we, we probably won't get into all of the what does it mean to taste of the heavenly gift, all that stuff. But the answer to that is also visible gifts, right? It's it's the visible reality of participating in the life of the church, the common uh, benefits of the Holy Spirit, all of that stuff. So if we get too far into the invisible categories, we start to talk about regeneration and salvation. The, the heavenly gift is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. We, we can't see those things. So we should stay away from them as much as possible. That will help us. You'll already get like 75% of the way there in understanding this passage if you just keep that distinction in front of you and keep on going back to the reality that we only have access to visible. So that's what this passage is talking about. And that's where this question really comes from is what if I have somebody in front of me who is going to visibly saying I'm turning away from everything. Let's say I, I previously knew or believed in with again, respect to very specifically 
justification in Christ alone. So the question still stands. All that information you shared is, is right on. We need to remember that it's not the, the plenary intent of this passage is to try to somehow make us all arbiters of what are spiritual things. In fact, I think Calvin is really particularly helpful in his writing on this passage. And, you know, him being a lawyer, you'd think he'd go into all the nuances of what this stuff means and how to parse right. it out so as to discern. What he actually emphasizes is every, he basically gets totally obsessed with the word enlightened or illumination in the passage. And he reminds us that men are truly entirely blind. So until Christ, of course, comes as the light of the world to enlighten all of us, there is nothing that we're doing. In other words, I think sometimes we read this passage and we say, well, if this person just made a really bad choice, and maybe they made it under, let's say, spiritual duress in the sense that we, the natural man abhors God, wants to fight against God, has a clenched fist toward God, always. And so they're saying, yeah, I turn away from that nonsense. I don't have anything to do with God. And then we take this passage, we say, all right, listen, they said it. And so because of that, like it's over now, right? Like that, that's, isn't that like overwhelming, even damning evidence that God doesn't want to have anything to do with them. They said it. And I think what Calvin's reminding us, how it pertains to this question is any kind of enlightenment comes from God that we're all POWs as it were in the spiritual sense. And that, uh, you know, I'm anticipating a bit, but I think this is leading us to then how we shape our prayers toward that person by understanding that this tasting, this seeing, this heavenly gift, if all of this stuff is coming from God, if God is establishing holiness, if God is separating out even this passage law and gospel and bringing his gospel to bear, that he can and he will do that even in the unlikely, even in the most unlikely people, even in those who might with their mouths confess against him at one point, it's, it's his prerogative to yeah. illuminate and so I think that it's good to keep that in mind, even as we look at this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I, I ran into, because the first time we kind of butt up against this on the show here was when we did the apostasy episode, when we talked about Derek Webb's interview on Popcorn Theology. And my view actually really changed through the course of reflecting on what he said and then also doing my own scriptural study after that recording to sort of, you know, just follow up on it. And one of the things that I've, I've become convinced of is that this passage um, is like you said earlier, it's not a hypothetical. It's right. not, it's not some, uh, some nameless, faceless, empty category of people to scare Christians into just behaving better. And I, I have heard it preached that way where no true Christian can fall away. And so this is actually kind of an empty threat, but the emptiness of the threat is sort of the way that the, that God uses the law to sort of like push you onto holiness. I actually hear that a lot coming out of like some people who are, are more, um, more firm into like lordship salvation kind of stuff. And I haven't heard MacArthur speak on this particularly, but I've heard guys who are defending the lordship salvation perspective use this passage as an example to say like, look, if you don't, if you don't actually obey Christ, if you don't actually uh, truly make him the Lord of your life, then you're, you're done for like, there's no option. And I was listening to the Theocast. Uh, they did an episode recently on um, lordship salvation. They were talking about how, in, in the life of a Christian, the third use of the law is never a threatening use. Right. And that's really important because if you come to this passage and you think that it's just this hypothetical, well, then you beat people up with it because you're the only option it has is to drive people to, to holiness and it doesn't have the power to do that. So, so it ends up being sort of condemnatory in this backhanded way, right? Christians can't really fall away, but if you could, you would, you definitely would 
And so you definitely have to be more holy because if you're not, if you fall away, then, you know, and it ends up kind of this loop. But then when we get to verse nine, that's where the gospel comes back, right? So we have to get there. We have to read in light of verse nine, but it's important to remember this is not purely a hypothetical, right? Right. Saying it clearly, Jesse and I do not believe that truly regenerate people can somehow become unregenerate. That's that's not reformed doctrine. It's not. It's. I mean, sometimes some of the Federal Vision guys would say that. Um, there are some people who are more friendly to NT Wright who might be okay with that. But the the main line of reformed Christian theology would deny that, and and we deny that. But the fact is that this passage is in the Bible, and it's not there just as an empty warning. You know, like like Jesse said, it's not a a warning cliff ahead sign in the middle of Kansas. It's a warning cliff ahead sign on the edge of a mountain that right. you could truly fall over. The fact that you are preserved from falling over doesn't negate or make the threat hypothetical. It simply means you were protected from that threat. And you know, the first person I ever heard who gave this real hypothetical uh, position is actually Alistair Begg, who I've ha- I have a lot of respect for, and I've had I've been impacted tremendously by his preaching ministry. But he he holds this sort of hypothetical view that it really is just this warning side with no actual bite to it. And I think we if we're going to be honest with the scriptures, we're going to be faithful to what it says. We have to recognize this does have a bite. It can't condemn a Christian, a true regenerate, a true regenerate Christian, but there's still a real threat. And, and I know that that's difficult and I'm, I'm not, I, like I said, I'm not, uh, particularly keen on, on trying to tie up all those loose ends. Maybe it's because right. I've been talking to the Lutherans in residence, but I just feel like we have to let the tension of the scriptures sometimes be the tension of the scriptures, recognizing that we may not always understand it. Yeah, for sure. I actually, so let me give it, I'm not saying that this is the explanation. Uh, this is just the way I've thought about it over the last several years. Because there is tension here, for sure. Right. I think there's a tendency, though, to be too binary with respect to the nuance that's underneath this passage. So, you know, people will say, like, well, either you're a Christian, like, if I see you doing Christian things, then you are most likely a Christian. So we keep giving you this quintessential example, like Derek Webb or others. They say a lot of things. They had ministries for years, right? Like, they they had followings. They understood theology. They spoke articulately about doctrines and some of them, especially about the doctrines of grace. I actually think this sometimes is confusing election for experience. So like what you're saying, God calls, God only calls the elect effectually. That's redundant, right? But I'm trying to emphasize the fact that what Paul is saying is here is that not here, but elsewhere is that what we have is God reaching out and saving effectually those whom he has chosen, those whom he has elected. This passage is a passage that is obviously decidedly not the elect. Now, normally this is where it gets tripped up and we're like, okay, so how can that be then? Because I don't understand what you're saying. You're saying then like these people who are identifying as Christians, they're saying they're, they're the elect people. Even that designation itself belongs to God, which is why the warning is in here, because it's not our standard of whether or not I consider myself elect, but I have to let the scriptures read me with respect to that definition. And so here's what I would ask. Does it seem so strange to us that there would be people in our midst who have experienced some of God's goodness beyond just common grace? Like they've, they've tasted something of the community of God. They've seen something about there's a romantic nature of who God is even got the idea that God offers forgiveness and restitution, that God even would in some ways 
and illuminate their minds in some degree with some spark of his life, that they might have a general perception of Christian ideals, but maybe get caught up in moralism. If this wasn't the case, then I don't know why, like in Mark 4, 17, we're talking about the parables of the soil. We would, we would have, you know, verse 17 reads, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of that word, immediately they fall away. So I don't actually find it so hard to find a third category where there are people who maybe even genuinely believe in their own definition that they are Christians because they have an experiential connection to even the family of God. But that root is at its base, not in faith. And so it's, I think, still possible then to get tripped up and say, well, everything I thought about Christianity, I guess we said this last week, everything I thought about Christianity is like, no, that doesn't make any sense to me anymore. It's, it's, it's nonsense. But you can't judge something by its abuse or you can't judge something by its caricature. Right. And so I think that there is this third category, which is like kind of underneath this. So he's, this is the warning here is saying, make sure that you are among the elect, not because you can do anything about it per se, but because you must test yourself to see whether you're in the yeah. faith, like that language in the faith. And like you said, all this is law. It's going to lead us into a little bit of gospel in the subsequent verses. But I think it's very common these days. Okay, like, why wouldn't this third category exist when we see people like Joel Osteen or others like preaching a right. Reader's Digest Christianity of like, be a better person, be a better husband, have a stronger family, make more money. All of this is in some way some like slight perverse illumination of the goodness of God. But we can, I think it would be easy for us to see that that will not hold you on the day of judgment. It will not hold you in the day of persecution. And so you'll be quick to turn away from that and say like, listen, I went to church and I was supposed to make a lot of money. And now my wife is sick and I lost my job. So I'm good. I repudiate all that nonsense. Thing. Right. I, yeah. I think that's what we're talking about here. I mean, what do you think? How off base am I on that? No, I think you're right on. This goes back to what we're talking about, about visible versus invisible categories, where people get tripped up with this passage or other other passages that have these kinds of real, genuine warnings, are that we're, we're trying to peer into the invisible realities, the secret things of God, right? We look at this and we think, well, how can someone who's elect fall away? And the answer is this passage isn't talking about the elect versus the not elect. Exactly, It's talking about those people who are in the church, who identify themselves as Christian, who've made some sort of profession of faith and have some, in some sense, have experienced the blessings that come along with all of that. Right, there are temporal blessings. We might even say that in a certain way, there are temporary spiritual blessings, um, unity and fellowship with other people, um, and, and so they they are in the church. They've experienced the power of the Word of God, and here here's a passage from the Confessions that I I think really just helps unlock this. And this is from Chapter uh, 17 of the Westminster Confession. And it's uh, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, Actually, no, it's an effectual calling. So it's chapter 10. And it says, Others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word, and have some common operation of the spirit, yet never truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. So so there is this third category that we have to have in order to understand this passage and those like it, is there are those who are elected, effectually called and come unto salvation, right? That's one category. And there are those 
who are not elect, never effectually called, and never have any any participation in the common operations of the Spirit and, and the power of the Word of God. And then there's this third category of people who are not elect, they are not effectually called, but right. they are outwardly called. Right. And because they're outwardly called, they come into the church and they experience these things. And so if we get tied up with the invisible categories that we can't see, we start to misunderstand what this passage is talking about. This passage is a warning to Christians to, just like Peter says, uh, make sure that you are elect, make sure, make your election sure, right? right? Not by causing it, but by validating it. Right. This passage is not talking about those people. This passage is talking about those who, to quote the confession again, not elected, although they may be called, may have some common operation of the Spirit, yet never truly come to Christ. And this is this is where I think we need to go with, with this question from our listener, because you know, we, we want to get down to the, the nitty gritty of it, the reality of, of the question asked. Is it right or is it wrong to pray for these people? And this is where I think verse uh, seven becomes so helpful, right? And it says, for the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those who's, for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God, right? The land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. The people who have had the reign of the word of God and the outward effectual or the outward call of the ministry of the word on them, they produce a crop and they receive a blessing for it. But, right, if uh, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. So th- right there we have two people in the same context. They're both receiving the word of God. One of them drinks it in and produces good fruit. One of them drinks it in uh, and does not produce good fruit. And here, here's where I think we get a little bit of help with our question. This passage is not just talking about people who seem stagnant in the faith or wander away. This is not talking about people, right? It doesn't say uh, the land that remains barren and produces nothing. It's not just producing nothing. It's producing hostility toward God. So I would make this comparison, perhaps. And this is not me making some, trying to make some sort of overly authoritative judgment call. But Derek Webb is very hostile to Christianity, right? It's not just um, it's not just that uh, it's not true. It's not true and it's harmful. Joshua Harris actually is still a lot more open to it. Derek Webb has said, I will never return to the faith. That is a hateful, bigoted religion. I want nothing to do with it. And he's actively propagating that. Joshua Harris has said, I may end up back in the church. I'm still not sure. I just, I just don't know. So right there we have the difference between the thorns and the thistles being produced and what we might call just like barren land, just nothing's really going on. Now, again, don't make too much of that comparison. I'm not trying to make anything strict, but we have two different people who are reacting and speaking in very different ways. Um, so we have to think about those categories. We have to think about not just the people who maybe are a little backslidden, right? You think about like the kid who was raised in the church and goes off to college and gets involved in sin, he never really repudiates his faith in terms of his profession. He's not hostile to the faith. He comes home for Christmas. He's still happy to go to church on Sunday, but he's just gotten swept up in other things that he shouldn't be swept up in. There's culpability for that, but that's not the same as someone who comes home from college and says, 
forget you guys. I hate, I hate this place. I hate God. I'm never going back there. Those are two different kinds of people. And that's where I think we get an answer to this question, right? I don't know the details of the person that this, uh, this listener is writing in about. I don't know all the details, but that's where we start to ask the question, is this person thorns and thistles? Are they hostile to the faith? Are they aggressively anti-Christian? Um, or are they just someone who perhaps has wandered, right? Who has perhaps uh, fallen into sin or has been taken upon by temptation and is not not winning that battle right now. And that's why we have to do those things. And again, visible categories. We're not talking about whether Derek Webb, as an example of hostility, is regenerate and elect, and Joshua Harris, as a, an, an example of someone who's not so hostile and is really seems just a little bit more apathetic towards things. Uh, is we're not asking if those people are regenerate or elect. We're asking what do their outward behaviors and their outward actions and their outward responses tell us about how they themselves consider themselves. Derek Webb considers himself to be an out, outside of the faith completely. Um, you know, he didn't love that we called him an apostate because he just uh, he just didn't love that word. But he agreed. He said, yeah, I'm apostate if you want to use that word. Joshua Harris hasn't really used that language. So we have to think about those categories. And that gets us to what do I do about it? You know, to put it to put it sort of plainly in this comparison, do I pray for Derek Webb? Do I pray for Joshua Harris? Should I treat them differently? Or are you asking me? Yeah, I was going to let you <laughs> take a hard, hard swing on that. <laughs> okay, so can I delay the answer for just a second? Please Is do. That cool? Can we get a little, because you were anticipating this too, can we get a little gospel in here by finishing out this this passage? Yeah, let's do it. And I'll, I'll use this to kind of frame my, my answer, which may or may not be surprising. So... Let's read on. So this is it's picking up in verse nine. It's about to get super good. I mean, it's, it was, it's the Bible. It's always good, but this is getting super good. So though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we just all said this, right? I mean, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation for God is not unjust. So as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So it's it's everything you said, Tony, right? I mean, this yeah. is rounding out this idea that really gives us a better perspective that what we're talking about here is where this is for the elect here, that there is an assurance and hope. So it's it's bookended. It is true law and gospel. It's this idea of like beware, be forewarned. This is a serious warning. Like surgeon generals, like, you know, slapped on this. And presumably for the person that is just interested in Christianity or maybe very interested in Christianity, but not yet or not called as part of God's elect, they're going to read the scriptures and come across this passage and it should do its intended work, which is to cause them to test to see whether or not they're in the faith. So enough from me stalling. Here's how to answer your question. So I think being that the question is specifically about whether the scripture in many ways prohibits this kind of prayer, I would say it doesn't. And I am prone because in light of what we just said, and in light of this understanding that the illumination comes from God, I am prone to pray liberally and as convicted for everyone there, even those who are combative, because in some ways, those are our direct spiritual enemies. And we have good reason to pray even for them and me particularly. And I think that because when we pray for them, we're in some ways, or at least we should be recognizing that we ought to be praying for ourselves, that God would complete his promise, that we would say, we're taking you at your word, God, that you will complete in me the work that you began. 
and that you will see me through the end. And so we're standing on that promise. We're borrowing this grace from God that I think should compel us to continue to pray because God is in the business of doing this radical illumination. And the way in which he does it is, again, under his prerogative. It's part of his wonderful, sovereign, gracious, humanly confusing, sidewinding and meandering ways sometimes. But I personally would say I would be more compelled to pray for any friend, any loved one who even has you know, verbally turned away, even who has been combative. Because in some ways, if you have a loved one like that, I think we all do, then you come to this place of realizing that prayer is maybe the only thing you have left with respect yeah. to that. You can't talk to them anymore about it. They don't want to hear about it from you. Perhaps it's stress strained or broken the relationship and your only connection is to cry out to God and ask that he would do his work. So I certainly understand that there is reason for distinction here. I think everything you just said is like super helpful. Uh, I think at the same time, I'm just prone, you know, the everything that God explains to us about prayer, everything that Jesus teaches us is like, be annoying with prayer. And while you're being annoying with it, God will refine your prayers such that you are changed in your offering of those prayers to him. But also he says, keep coming to me, keep coming to me, keep coming to yeah. me. And so I think that we should never give up and that we should always feel, I would say like, don't, don't even, I don't think it's a question of whether or not the scriptures here, especially with respect to verse eight are saying like, well, because God is saying, and, and this goes back to your invisible category thing, in some ways to say whether or not, to make a judgment whether or not the scriptures is saying you should stop praying is to automatically impound that you can see the spiritual condition. You can see the invisible thing. And I, I just think that that leaving that up to God is continuing to pray for that person by name, specifically with conviction for them to fall under conviction. Yeah. And I'll be honest with you. I didn't know, I didn't know whether we're going to, we're going to come down in the same place on this question. Uh, and I don't think we do come down on exactly the same. No, place. we don't. So I don't think so. I, I would, I would come to this passage and um, I would side with someone like Matthew Henry um, and I'm not just like name dropping that there drop to be Matthew like, Henry's I'm going to side with Matthew Henry. Jesse's just got, no, no. I, I, I think everything you said is, is good and fine. And here's, here's where I'm going to draw a little bit of a distinction is I think that this kind of statement in the scripture gives us the liberty to either per continue praying for a person, but I also think it gives us the liberty to realize and the freedom to say, I'm, I'm done. Like I, I'm done with, I'm done with praying for this person. I'm done with pursuing this person. And I don't say that because we should, should abandon a person out of a lack of love, but I know the pain and the discouragement that sometimes comes with praying for a person who's hostile to the faith. And so when I look at this passage, um, I, I just want to read this out of Matthew Henry, because this has always had a lot of impact on me as I've been studying this and trying to understand it. He says, uh, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance. It is extremely hazardous. Very few instances can be given of those who have gone so far and fallen away and yet ever have been brought to true repentance. Such a repentance as is indeed a renovation of the soul. Some have thought this is a sin against the Holy Ghost, but without ground. The sin here mentioned is plainly apostasy, both from the truth and the ways of Christ. God can renew them to repentance, but he seldom does. 
and with men themselves, it is impossible. So I don't, I don't actually think that what Jesse and I are saying is, is incompatible, but I think this is, this is an example of how two people can come to the scripture. They can look at it. They can apply it slightly differently, even though some of the same principles underlie that application. So I would look at this passage and say, you have permission to continue praying for a person. It's not forbidden by the scriptures, which I think is kind of, was kind of at the heart of the question is, is exactly. do the scriptures prohibit me from exactly. continuing to pray for a loved one or Derek Webb or, you know, let's say you just are really, really, you are a huge Cayman's Call fan and you're really burdened to pray for Derek Webb. By all means, if you feel burdened by that and you want to do that, then you should feel free to do that. But we should also recognize, I, I get this question um, on a fairly regular basis, not as much as I used to, but I'll get a, an email from someone or a message on Facebook that's like, hey, my friend is considering converting to Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or right. or whatever, and, and can you talk to them and help them, you know, can you convince them not to do it? And the reality of it is I have a zero for zero track record with that. I mean, I do my best. I, I, I'm always willing to try to help. But the reality is that most of the time when someone has made that decision, that decision is made. You're not going to you're not going to convince them otherwise. And, and that's where I think where Jesse is saying is so potent is sometimes all you have left is prayer. Sometimes all you have left is to cry out to God and say, God, I know that with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so I think it really is true. I think that, you know, when this passage says, for it is impossible, I think there's like a little, a little Holy Spirit asterisk that says with men, with, with human, right. with human right. power, it's implied. this is impossible. And the reality is that that's impossible for someone coming to, coming to faith outwardly for the first time, right? I don't think that we should feel an overwhelming, um, inescapable burden to pray endlessly for someone who is hostile to the faith, who has walked away from it. And I don't think that we should feel bound by in our conscience, unless we are, unless you're being led by the Holy Spirit, right? If you're being led, you should obey your conscience. Right. But I don't feel like you should sometimes like people think like, oh man, my, my brother, he's, he's so far from God. And I've just been praying from so long. Do I have a seared conscience that I, I don't feel like I should be burdened for prayer for him anymore? I think the answer that this passage gives us in its application is no, you shouldn't feel seared in conscience. Sometimes a person walks away from the faith and they're never coming back. And, and we know that with these invisible categories, it means they were never there, right? We understand that, that the only reason they went out from us permanently is because they never were of us in the first place. But I, I want to see this passage and recognize, in my opinion, there's a freedom to say, I, I, if I'm burdened to pay for, pray for this person, then I recognize I'm praying that God does something that is impossible in human terms visibly, visibly looking at this, the visible categories of it, this person is gone and we have to recognize that they're gone and, and behave accordingly. That may mean you, you pray for them. It may not invisibly in the background categories, the secret will of God is unknown to us. He may choose. And I, I couldn't find the passage out of John Owen, but John Owen makes a, makes a pretty potent point on this one, a pretty potent point. I'm like a Southern Baptist preacher with my alliteration there. <laughs> he makes a very, a very sizable, potent point on this is that that person is lost to us. That doesn't mean that person is lost to God. Right. And so whether, whether that leads you to pray that God will, will pursue that person and bring them back or whether that leads you to not feel guilt over the fact that you 
are not able to continue that pursuit. I think the passage has both of those applications. So I don't think I don't think Jesse and I are actually in a hundred percent agreement on this one. I think we come to this differently, which is I think is a is a rare thing on this, unless we're talking about baptism. It's it's pretty rare that we don't end up in the same basics or, or uh, eschatology. I guess we're on a slightly different spot than maybe, that too. Maybe. But I think that we have to come to this passage, and if, in my opinion, if we're going to take this passage seriously as a real genuine threat to the readers of the passage, then we have to recognize that that visibly speaking, sometimes a person is lost to us, either because they're so hostile or because circumstances change, right? Sometimes you have that person that you live next to that you've been witnessing to for years and they're hostile to the faith. And then you move away and you never speak to them again. You can continue to pray for them. You're not sinning by not continuing to pray for them. And I think we look at this passage and we can kind of get both of those. We get the freedom to take both of those courses, I think, both of those courses of action, I think. And we're answering like a specific question. I want to be clear. We're not right. just talking about, let's say, wayward people or somebody who's drifted away. The emphasis behind the question, which is represented in these couple of verses, is that this is an apostate. So it is somebody who made a confession at some point in time and now is reversing that confession or even maybe antagonistic toward that confession. So I actually do think we're on the same page because the more I heard you speak, I'm saying the same thing, but I'm just approaching it from a slightly different angle, which is the question was about whether the prohibition exists, whether this right. passage was prohibiting future or subsequent prayer reach out. I would say it's not. I don't think you have to be compelled to pray for every you know, reprobate. Right. I do think because the nature of the question was in the context of relationship, which is where this often happens. Like, I, I'll be honest with you, like, I didn't, maybe I should have, I didn't pray for Derek Webb before any of that stuff happened. So like, <laughs> it would be weird maybe for me to see, I, I don't feel compelled to pray for him, but I don't think there's anything wrong for me. If even in the moment, even now, if I'm just saying, you know what, when was the last time somebody prayed for him? Or I even prayed yeah. for those who are suffering under their, the weight of their own sinfulness and their own blindness. Yeah. There's just nothing that prohibits that. So I think that we want to be clear. I think that's what we're saying. We're both in agreement. Right. When it, actually, that's really the whole of the question is, no, yeah. the scripture is not saying give up on them. They're not saying that, especially if you're feeling convicted. Nor, though, does it say, like, you need to create a list of, like, top 10 reprobates that you know of right. all over the world and then somehow commit yourself to that. I'm also not saying that. I, I am saying, though, that don't give up. And if you feel compelled to pray, especially as I think this was the case here, a good friend or a loved one leaving to pursue something else, repudiating the faith in some way, uh, yeah, like your heart's bound up in that. And I would say God says, like, this is my jam. This is my work. So we pray. And there's nothing that precludes us from doing that very thing. So I think we're on the same page. I, I came out with like a little bit of fire there because I just... I don't want people to give up on their loved ones. Like those who, yeah. are, who are compelled to pray, um, our God does a mighty work and he never, I mean, pick, pick the, pick the old Baptist cliche, like whatever you want to say, like there's nobody beyond the reach of God. There's nobody so right. far away. They're not close enough to God. Like whatever you want to say, it's all true. That's why they're cliches. So yeah. I think here, the warning is a warning and a challenge. It's a warning to say, again, you have to take a look at yourself here, test and see. And it's impossible if you've really tasted the goodness of God, received the heavenly gift to, to be pulled away. And at the same time, I do think it's a little bit of encouragement because you know that that illumination comes from God. You might, you ought to pray for those whom you know, whom you have conviction for, that they, that God might reach out and save them in the midst of those things. You know, you and I have talked, you know, I think at length as well about one example, like the Roman Catholic Church, right? 
And we've said that, uh, by and large, the truest representation of the Roman Catholic Church in its own words, own doctrine, is heretical because it's adding to the gospel. Right. There's just that, and full stop, right? End of statement. We also have said anywhere the gospel is being read, talked about, preached, there's always hope that God is using that word that is going out and that is doing great work. I see in this so many of those same kind of parallels with this this you know, chapter of Hebrews, yeah. that uh, God can do this rescuing work. I am part and parcel. I am witness to that rescuing work. So if he can save me, then he can save anybody. So yeah, uh, yeah I, hope, I don't know if that clears my, clears my thought. I think actually we tried to bring some disagreement into this. And I think in the end, we're, <laughs> do you know what we I mean? We just I couldn't think, pull it off. Yeah, I think we're actually, because even while you're talking, I was like, no, I'm really seeing, like, I'm with you. Like, I, I think that <laughs> I wanted to emphasize no prohibition does not exist. Yeah. But I certainly wasn't saying like everybody should be compelled to pray for Derek Webb. No, <laughs> no. Now I'm going to be all convicted that I need to pray for Derek Webb. I no. did not mean to like mock people who may feel conviction to no, pray you, for their like you, you, high profile ex-evangelical or something no, like that. You, you definitely weren't. But I think there's something there, right? That's like, we're not trying to put a burden on anybody. But right. if like somebody is, you know, you know how it is. Like you read an article about somebody and you just feel compassion or you feel like, you know, maybe you've been there or maybe you have a twinge of knowing something what that's like, or you read it and you're overcome by a sense of hopelessness for this person. You, we shouldn't be like, you know what? I love the prayer with the Bible just makes it clear. That's like thorns and thistles, man. So I'm out. No, pray in that moment. If it's just once like pray, but follow that inclination because I think it is actually God given It's from the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And just to just to maybe wrap this out, because my my uh, response to this passage is largely rooted in this passage and others like it being used to beat up Christians. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so I think one thing that's important, and this is why verse nine is important. This passage, no matter who you think or how you think a person becomes part of this category of the thorns and thistles, A person who still is continuing to identify themselves as a Christian and continuing in some way to partake of the common operations of the spirit uh, is not the view of this passage. And we know that he's, and we know that that person is not because of what verse nine says. Right. So I don't, you did it earlier. Now I'm doing it. Paul, it's this, I don't think that Paul wrote this, the author of Hebrews who we will call not Paul. Right. Uh, he, you know, he goes through this and honestly, like, it's kind of a slap and it's kind of like a slap down. Like it's it people sitting there going like, oh man, like I, I, I thought that I was good. Like I, I, you know, I come here every week. I take the, I take the sacraments. I listen to preaching. I serve my neighbors. And he, he comes to the end of it here. And he says, though we speak in this way, this, this way, this threatening way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Right on. So one thing that I think we we can kind of wrap this out, and I actually think this may help in the particular listener's circumstances too, is a person who continues to identify themselves as a Christian and desires to follow and serve Jesus Christ, that person is not in view in this passage. So unequivocally, the person, we didn't read the email and we won't get into the details, but unequivocally, the person that this listener is thinking of is not described by this passage. Right on. I'm pointing at the passage on my computer 
you can't see it. I'm very emphatic. He is not described by this passage. So absolutely continue to pray for your friend in this situation. Who is described in this passage is someone who is recalcitrantly opposed to the faith and is opposing the faith and producing thorns and thistles and hostility. Right. This person is this person is described in the same way that the land is described after the fall. Right. Right. It's it's hostile to Adam. It's hostile to Eve. So so that is important for us to remember as we kind of round this out, is that we get tripped up in this passage because one, we've confused visible versus invisible categories. We've started to think that this passage is about those who are elect who have fallen away. And we don't realize that that's an, it's an incoherent category, right? And because we've done that, we sometimes misapply this passage and think that people have fallen away when in reality, this is not even who not Paul is talking about. So it's important to, like I said, read a little bit more when that Arminian comes at you to go back to that defensive posture, just to give you a little bit on that too. When that Arminian comes at you and is like, well, look at Hebrews 6, 4, like, what are you going to do about that? It's impossible just go to Hebrews 9. He's not talking about that person. He's not talking about the kind of person that you are proposing to me as an impossible category, right? So we have to keep that straight. We have to keep it in view of the whole, the whole thing, right? Paul, not Paul. I did it again. I did it again. (laughs) Not Paul here is talking to a group probably of, of Jewish converts Right. who had not apostatized from the faith yet right. and were considering returning to Judaism and abandoning the faith. He is talking to people who had not yet done that, who were still in the Christian assembly to hear this sermon preached in the first place. So when you when you see that, or some, maybe someone has said this to you, I remember there was a time where I was not living as righteous of a life as I knew I should have been. And someone brought this passage to me and said, I think you're the guy in this passage. I think you're producing thorns and thistles. Oh, wow. And I was like, we're talking about this as I help you lead a youth group right now. And I'm like, obviously like non-Christians can end up in the church, but like, it was really clear that I was not this person. Um, And it can be used as a cudgel. So try to remember who the passage is talking about. Try to remember who it is that is in view. And remember, there's no prohibition against praying for people because even if, even if the outward signs appear to be thorns and thistles, that still does not give us a hundred percent certainty about the inward invisible category. And so where it says it is impossible, remember that little Holy Spirit asterisk, it's impossible for man, but with God, all things are possible. And I think, I think that's where we come on this passage. We land on this passage and it it becomes a source of encouragement for us, right? We have the liberty to continue to pray, trusting that God can do the impossible. We have the liberty after a time of prayer, after a season of prayer, if we no longer feel burdened to pray for someone, we have the liberty to step away from that and say, God has given us these visible categories and he expects us, he expects us to be able to act on them. So, so it, it would be unnecessary for us to say this person who clearly appears to abandon the faith, we should somehow act as though they're coming back. Because as Matthew Henry said, it almost never happens. It really is very rare. We hope it does. We pray it does, but it's rare. So we've got the liberty to do that. And now we've got the liberty to recognize that if we're sensitive to this, if we feel like maybe we're the person in that and it really upsets us, we're probably not that person. We're already identifying not that person. So I, I think this passage sometimes feels like a, it feels like a, a tight jacket or a noose. And in reality, it's actually, when understood properly, it's actually a very freeing, encouraging, gospel-filled passage. It's a overall. blessing. Yeah. It really is a blessing. Just like all of the scripture. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you ended that way. I think it is something that we, 
we come to it and we're like, oh man, here's that passage and it's like scaring the socks off me. What if I'm yeah. this person? I don't, I don't really know. It, it's not meant to like cause this kind of massive panic, maybe a little bit of holy dread, but the appropriate yeah. type of fear because God is holy and all of the saving work is all the time in every way God's. So yeah. it puts us in the right place. And that right place is actually a very comfortable place because we're resting on the full and completed and finished work of the Savior. Uh, you know, I was just thinking as I was driving home from church this Lord's Day, for some reason I was just ruminating on the words, it is finished. And I was like, you know, I sometimes think about those words as Jesus saying, my death is finished. I came to the pinnacle. I came, I saw, I conquered. It's done. And it's just so much more than that. It's like it, he's saying what's finished is my entire recapitulation of Israel. What's finished is me taking on all of humanity compressed down into like a single person, obeying all the laws, perfectly becoming obedient to the father and then dying. So being everything is finished is everything. All yeah. of that is finished is all of it. It's not just yeah. the dying. It's everything that preceded it as well. And so if that's true, then that means that God can come and rescue everything in us even the stuff that we pull against him, even the ways in which we turn away, even that he can redeem. And I think there are times where he uses prayer as the means yeah. to do that. So no prohibitions. I was going to write a song, but it just... It's the wrong, that's the wrong podcast. It's the wrong, it's the wrong podcast. You but do that on the other podcast. We do hope that this kind of conversation was useful to people. I mean, everybody knows that this podcast will always be free. And so you might sometimes ask, like, how do we keep that going with all the hosting and other expenses? I'm so glad you asked because it would be awkward if I had brought it up myself. And <laughs> the answer to that is, I appreciate that you laughed. The answer to that, nobody else did. Yeah, nobody. The answer is that uh, we have so many great brothers and sisters who are providing not only things like this with questions, but also... Uh, some who have been able by God's blessing to support us financially. And so if you're interested in doing that, I mean, the best place to go is just reformbrotherhood.com. You can find all kinds of great things there about the podcast. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com backslash reformed brotherhood. And we have lots of people giving little donations that all add up to a significant amount that helps us to continue to keep these conversations going. And so we would encourage you to reach out um, before we give all the details about the book giveaway. And this is the last week. Tony, how can people get in touch with us, ask us questions so we can do more episodes like this? Yeah, the best way to do it is to go to reformbrother.com. There's a little link in the top right corner that says join. And uh, you're not going to sign up for a newsletter or a mailing list or a, you know, a spam list. Uh, really, it's just a list of ways for you to contribute to the podcast. You can give us a call at 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. Or you can email us. The list uh, stuff's there. You can purchase some sweet Reform Brotherhood gear. I have heard from listeners before that they get questions about it. So <laughs> you could buy a mug for your desk, and it's a good way to talk about the gospel and about you know what what you like to listen to and why you like to listen to it. Um, you can you know there's a link to Patreon there. You can uh, support us uh, financially if you'd like, uh, or you know it's just a good 
good place to go to find resources. So if you just want to consume, that's fine with us. You can go and look up all of our episodes. There's a search function that lets you search the title and the very short descriptions we give on it. Um, and one of the other things that uh, the generous donors uh, through Patreon enable us to do is occasionally give away some free books. So we are closing out this uh, sort of Lutheran bonanza uh, of free books. <laughs> Today is the day this podcast releases. It is going to be releasing on September 3rd, which is also the last day for you to get in your entry to win one of our free Lutheran resources. So Jesse, why don't you very quickly run through how they do that and then we will run away. All right, people, here's what you need to do. And by the way, this brings us full circle because one of the books we're giving away is entitled Night Driving, Notes from a Prodigal Soul by one of our Lutherans in residence, Chad Bird. This book is basically an apostasy story in many ways. Yeah, um, It's at least a story of striving against God, of being at the pinnacle of what Chad would call his spiritual dreams and having everything rock shaken to the core, partly by his own bad choices. So we have Night Driving. You should definitely read this, even if you don't win it. Scandalous Stories by Eric Sorensen and Daniel Emery Price. This is, by their own definition, a sort of commentary on parables. And then one last book, The Christ Key by Chad Bird. Here's what you have to do. If you want the Christ key, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We know it'll be five stars, so we don't have to say anything about that. <laughs> Take a picture, send it info at reformbrotherhood.com. If you want scandalous stories, go to pod go to podcast. Go to Twitter. Share the podcast on Twitter. Take a little snippet of what you've shared. Send it at info at reformbrotherhood.com. For night driving, go to that lovely book of face. Share the podcast on Facebook. Take a little snapshot of what you shared. Send it to us. Here's the bottom line. Just go to some social media, share the podcast, take a picture of it, send it to us at inforeformbrother.com and you will be registered. Yes. Yeah. I'll tell you what. If you go to a different social media that we haven't used and you share the podcast and send us a link, Fine. we're just going to randomly enter into one of those three. So <laughs> yeah. if you really want to share the podcast on Pinterest or what is it? Speak LinkedIn. Out or Gab or LinkedIn or... I don't know, some other rando or your blog, social network, or your me, me, we, or whatever it's your called. MySpace. Yeah. You want to leave a business card on someone's table <laughs> with a link on it. You want to do that? Take a picture, take a picture, send it to us. We'll enter you randomly into one of the three drawings. You but if you want to win a specific book and just see. share it that way, yep. take a oh, picture. That'd be great. Boom. If you buy a Reform Brotherhood t-shirt, it'll be way too late to get it at this point. But if you buy a Reform Brotherhood t-shirt and just just wear it around and like pose with selfies with people who don't know you, uh, <laughs> we will probably not help you get bailed out of jail, but we will enter you into whatever the next book contest is. Well done. All right. So please, there's still time, people. You know you want a free book. These are all good books. Tony and I do not give away bad books. It's true. You know I tried impossible? to give away a book that I didn't think was so great one time and nobody entered it because we have all these discerning <laughs> listeners that knew better. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to giving away some free books next time. But until then, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood.